Welcome to the New Books in Philosophy channel of the New Books Network. My name is Robert Talese, and I am co-host of the channel along with Carrie Figdor. Today, my guest is Professor Elizabeth Anderson. We will be talking about her new book, The Imperative of Integration, which was published this year with Princeton University Press. Elizabeth Anderson is Arthur F. Thurnau Professor and John Rawls Collegiate Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Consider the following facts. In the United States, African American men are 10.9 times as likely as white men to die of homicide. Of white-owned firms, In major metropolitan areas in the U.S. with substantial African-American populations, 58% have no minority employees. The infant mortality rate among African-Americans is nearly twice the U.S. average, and it's growing. The median African-American household income is two-thirds that of the median white household. The unemployment rate among African-Americans is twice that of whites. African-American men are imprisoned at a rate that is 6.5 times higher than that of white men. African-Americans are worse off than the average American and worse off than whites on virtually all major objective measures of well-being. Now, these facts indicate that the United States is a de facto segregated society. And I think this should occasion, at the very least serious concern. But there is a philosophical question regarding the nature of the concern that these facts should occasion. Do these facts merely reveal an unfortunate truth about our society? Are they signals of the inefficiency of government policies? Do they prove that the U.S. is a fundamentally racist society? More generally, what kind of bad is de facto segregation? Now consider a further fact. More than 90% of Americans attend a church in which their ethno-racial group is at least 80% of the congregation. In the imperative of integration, Elizabeth Anderson argues that de facto segregation is a mark of a democratic failure, a failure of our society to live up to its own ideals of freedom, equality, and justice. Accordingly, she argues that it is an error to think of these matters in terms of merely the redistribution of goods. The problems associated with race in the United States are, according to Anderson, democratic problems associated with a failure to extend social membership to all citizens. Combining acute empirical analysis with what I regard as top-notch philosophical theorizing Anderson makes a compelling case for radically rethinking freedom, equality, and justice in a democratic society. Let's turn now to the interview. Hello, Elizabeth Anderson. Hi, Bob. Welcome to New Books in Philosophy. How are you today? Uh, I'm doing very well. Great. Thanks for agreeing to talk to us about your new book, The Imperative of Integration. Um, Today on New Books in Philosophy, we're talking with Liz Anderson about her new book with Princeton University Press. Uh, the Imperative of Integration is the title. Uh, in this book, uh, Anderson grapples with the problem of what we might call de facto racial segregation in the contemporary United States. She combines a broad command of empirical data 
with a philosophically compelling theoretical framework uh, and making a powerful case for integration as a democratic social ideal. Um, before we get into the details of uh, the argument of the book and some of the empirical uh, considerations that are brought to bear uh, on some of these normative issues, uh, Liz, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what brought you to this project? Sure. Um, I started out as an undergraduate as an economics major, uh, and I was always deeply engaged in the social sciences. Uh, but in the course of my undergraduate career, I found that philosophy was asking some hard questions about some of the assumptions of economic theory that economists themselves weren't too interested in addressing, but which I thought were really profound. And so I, my education took a philosophical turn, uh, and that continued in graduate school uh, at Harvard. And then I came to the University of Michigan in 1987. But during this whole time, I was always very interested in integrating the perspectives of the social sciences and philosophy, bringing them together, getting the social sciences to think more critically about their foundational assumptions, while at the same time getting philosophers to be engaged more deeply in empirical matters and how the world works and thinking about the normative implications of uh, what our social situation actually is. So those kinds of preoccupations have been with me for a very long time uh, and The Imperative of Integration is a book in which I am really trying to show the power of bringing philosophy to bear on uh, social scientific theorizing in a really pervasive way. So here I am at the University of Michigan, John Rawls Collegiate Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies, uh, and about to launch a new program for undergraduates at the University of Michigan in philosophy, politics, and economics, in which I hope to bring this perspective to undergraduates as well. Well, excellent. And that background in economics and certainly some of the um, uh, interests that you, that you say that you've had uh, from the very beginning in um, social scientific data and the rest uh, are really evident in the book, of course, and we'll get to that uh, in a second. Um, but let me ask uh, about some of the methodological uh, commitments that, that, that you have, and uh, particularly in light of uh, this uh, audio bio, um, sorry, autobiographical uh, uh bit of information that you just gave. So the book begins with um, a, a note, you call it, about the methodology, particularly in terms of this um, debate that many people in moral and political philosophy have been following because it's been flaring up in various ways over the past uh, five or six years between ideal versus non-ideal uh, political theorizing and moral theorizing. So you affirm at the beginning of the imperative of integration that the book is a work in non-ideal theory. Um, can you tell us a little bit in general terms about that distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory, what you take to be at stake in that distinction, and why you think it's important uh, for political philosophers working on uh, normative issues uh, uh, to engage in uh, non-ideal theorizing uh, rather than just uh, ideal uh, theory? Right. So ideal theory tries to come up with uh, principles uh, that 
cover an ideal world? You know, what would what would be the moral principles that would govern or describe a morally perfect world? Um, and yeah, there's a role for that, but I think it's quite limited, especially in political philosophy. And non-ideal theory, in a narrow sense, uh, is taken to deal with problems of non-compliance. What happens when people aren't behaving as the ideal principles say they ought to behave? I'm taking a rather broader understanding of non-ideal theory in this book, which is more methodological. It has to do with identifying what are the fundamental problems that are of most significance or urgency or importance in the actual world we live in. Now, those problems are generated by noncompliance, but there's lots of different um, ways in which people could fail to comply uh, with the best rules of justice. And what I'm interested in doing from a methodological point of view is to start theorizing in political philosophy from the problems that people are actually facing that have a kind of systematic or structural feature to them. There's all kinds of random problems that people suffer from, uh, random accidents and so forth. I'm not interested in those. What I'm interested in is starting from the kinds of complaints and difficulties and challenges that people face due to systematic structural features of their world. And for that reason, I think it's important to actually come to grips with the way our society operates and the ways it uh, distributes goods and bads across people's lives uh, and across different people and different groups of people. Um, So from my perspective, the fundamental feature of non-ideal theory is to start from the lives of those who are less advantaged uh, uh, and asking what are the problems that they face, what are the causes of their problems, and then to theorize about, well, once we have a diagnosis of what their problems is, maybe then we can start thinking about uh, treatments, policies, principles that could be used to uh, remediate or remove or overcome uh, uh, the problems that the disadvantaged face. Right. So, and again, the the book is is uh, is, is filled with uh, very uh, um, detailed and in some cases jaw dropping uh, discussions of some of the empirics uh, about uh, segregation in the United States, um, but. To stay on this methodological point just for, for a little while longer, um, uh, can you say something about, I mean, something more specific now, about what role you think uh, empirical considerations play in our moral theorizing? And let me put the question uh, in a slightly more pointed way. Um, could there be some empirical finding that we could come across or that we can discover is especially well confirmed that would lead us to have to abandon uh, some uh, uh, some well-considered uh, moral principle that we may have formed uh, in the the comfort of our offices or armchairs. Um, that is, uh, it's it's one thing to say that our moral and political theorizing should be informed by empirical data uh, about situations and, and conditions on the ground. Um, but is there 
also a at least the possibility that um, our empirical investigations might cause us to, in some cases, maybe even radically, revise um, some of our moral principles or moral ideals. Absolutely. I, I think that's right. So let me just lay on the line uh, the pragmatist perspective that I'm presupposing in this book without actually spelling it out in a great deal of detail. Good. Um, so in the background here, I accept a kind of Deweyan pragmatist perspective on uh, moral philosophy, which right. takes it that um, experience is critical to testing moral judgments. Now, what does that mean? Well, I take it to mean that the, the most important data that we can get about whether a way of life or a moral principle is justified comes from our experiences in living and according to that moral principle and seeing whether we can, uh, uh, whether we find life in accordance with those principles acceptable, whether we can live with the consequences, uh, uh, whether we can bear some of the new problems that are generated by living this way. Um, we're constantly learning from experience and putting our ideals into practice. Uh, uh, what, what worth these ideals have. So this doesn't represent an abandonment of what we call the use of intuitions in moral theory, but it does place special weight on intuitions, moral intuitions, that is feelings or positive uh, attitudes that we have towards certain normative propositions, we, we ought to place special weight on the feelings that we get after actually living in accordance with them, <laughs> right. rather than merely an anticipation. Uh, obviously, we have to deliberate. That requires engaging in thought experiments about what we think life under a certain principle will be like. But uh, what's really important is what it's actually like when we do live under that. And we could find that some moral ideal that we had held out for ourselves seems really great in the armchair. But then when we find ourselves living in accordance with it, our lives could um, encounter all kinds of difficulties. And maybe that could signal to us that uh, we misconceived our moral ideal. Maybe it depended on conflating certain ideas that really need to be sharpened up and distinguished uh, in our practice. Um, there could be many possibilities, or maybe we just didn't anticipate certain consequences arising from a certain way of life. And now, once we encounter those consequences, we figure we have to modify our ideals um, to avoid some of them. Well, let me ask one one further question, and then we'll get into some of the the, the actual meat of the argument of the book. Um, could you say something about how you see this uh, Deweyan uh, empirical experimentalist um, approach to moral theory? Is this uh, connected to, or part of, or maybe it's just a different aspect of uh, a reflective equilibrium uh, a reflective equilibrium strategy? Is it different from reflective equilibrium as a methodology for moral theory? How do you see these two? Uh, the, the, the reflective equilibrium model I associate with Rawls uh, and um, some of the um, uh, experimental uh, um, uh, uh, principles that you're, you're now mentioning come straight out of Dewey. Um, do you see these two as complementary, as distinct, as 
in conflict? Uh, how do you understand the, the, these these two um, sort of broadly speaking now methodologies in moral theory? Right. So experimentalism does make use of uh, reflective equilibrium because we, in acting in accordance with our moral principles, we gather new information about what that's like and what the consequences are, and that information then feeds back into our assessment of the moral principles themselves. And hopefully, at least for a certain stretch of time, we will be able to achieve more or less equilibrium around certain principles. But of course, life is constantly changing as well. The world changes, circumstances change. And so over time, it can be that the ideals that at one point in time had achieved equilibrium can be pushed out of equilibrium. Right now, we confront new circumstances, and the old ideals don't necessarily work. Um, And for that reason, we shouldn't think of equilibrium as any kind of permanent state that gives us insight into what's morally true for all possible worlds, but rather perhaps more like uh, a kind of temporary stability that's uh, achieved because, for the time being at least, uh, uh, we've settled... uh, variety of normative questions and nothing that we've experienced so far gives us any reason to reopen those settlements. Right, right, right. And that's also just in the way that you framed it, that um, sort of reopening something that has been settled, even if only uh, temporarily, that, that that's the stimulus for New moral thinking that this seems like a uh, like a pragmatist commitment uh, as well that um, you don't begin as as per said just because you can put a question mark at the end of a sentence doesn't mean that you're doubting uh, you actually need some experience uh, to uh, force you to or to to throw some of your commitments uh, uh, into question and it's not something you can just will uh, in a way. Um, so, but now let me move from the methodological to uh, the theoretical uh, underpinnings of. Uh, the imperative of integration. Um, so I think it's safe to say that uh, in political philosophy, um, uh, you're a liberal in the philosophical sense of that term, mm-hmm. and that the book is an exercise in liberal political and social philosophy. Um, and as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, philosophical liberalism is often criticized on the grounds that it's too individualistic, um, uh, regards individuals as the ultimate social units. It has a hard time, so its critics say, in dealing with um, uh, facts with respect to groups and the ways in which individuals are uh, interrelated. Um, You uh, no doubt will recall, as maybe our listeners will as well, um, this uh, liberal communitarian debates that were going on in the late 80s and early 90s, um, which communitarians typically charged liberals with social atomism or uh, having a picture of the self that's essentially unencumbered and um, all kinds of nastiness we're supposed to follow uh, from these commitments. But um, your variety of liberalism, um, as you characterize it uh, in the book, is a relational liberalism. Um, indeed, um, it seems uh, that you're committed to a conception of equality, um, which emphasizes or is focused on the character of the relations between people, um, not simply with the individual as such, but the ways in which different individuals are connected. Um, could you say something about this conception of liberalism and say something about the focus that you have on relations and uh, explain to us a little bit about uh, the, the view that you've got uh, of liberalism in general? Sure. So uh, it is kind of a staple of 
sort of pop theorizing in the history of liberalism to imagine that it starts off with uh, a state of nature of atomized individuals who don't stand in any relations to each other and then find instrumental reasons to hook up in various ways. Um, but actually, I think if, if you look at social contract theory, uh, the history of social contract theory uh, in a more contextual way, you'll see that the device of social contract theory was never really supposed to postulate atomized individuals, but rather it was a way to get a critical perspective on relations of authority and subordination. And right. liberalism is fundamentally about um, limited government. Okay, that, that I think is a formula most people will accept. That, that sure that liberalism is about limited government. But now let's think about that word government. It isn't restricted just to the power of the state. Uh, if you look back historically, government was used in to refer to all kinds of authority relations. We have governesses who governed children in the households. Uh, husbands were said to govern their wives, employers to govern their employees and so forth. We see government or authority relations everywhere. And so the way I understand liberalism right from the start, um, it's fundamentally about getting a skeptical and critical view of authority relations and asking hard questions about what could possibly justify those relations, uh, suggesting that certain kinds of authority relations can't be justified, or at least that sharp limits have to be placed on them. So right from the start, I read the history of liberalism as already preoccupied with the nature of human relationships, and particularly when those relationships are between unequals. And one of the deep thrusts of liberal theory has been to press the idea that in places where people have assumed that authoritarian relations should uh, uh, govern social order, we should replace those relations with relations of equality. Okay, and that's really, I think, a deep insight of democratic theory, that we don't, we don't need uh, um, traditional authoritarian or even communitarian hierarchy to get social order going. We often do much better under democratic relations where citizens are relating to each other on terms of equality. But that, of course, is also a relational perspective. Equality isn't just a matter of how much money or other goods each of us enjoys privately. It's fundamentally about how we relate to each other. Can we see each other eye to eye and take it for granted that each of us is equally entitled to have our interests uh, uh, figure and be responded to um, by the social order. Right, and um, excellent. And this is another, I think, distinctive feature of um, the relational view of liberalism that you have. And in fact, in your answer, we move very uh, fluidly from talking about liberalism to talking about democracy in that this relational view seems to um, uh, make more natural 
and maybe uh, more conceptually tight, uh, the connection between a proper liberal political order and a democratic order. And I take it that um, some of the, uh, the ways in which the liberal tradition has been interpreted, um, particularly in terms of this uh, taking the social contract story maybe a little bit too literally, uh, that um, and some of the critics have push this against liberalism, that uh, liberalism can't take democracy seriously enough or democracy comes as the afterthought. You first figure out individuals and individual rights and then democracy is the kind of uh, thing that falls out of that for, for politics. Um, so could you say, tell us a little bit more about your conception of democracy then uh, in connection with uh, uh, this, this relational view of equality? You know, I know that you've, you're on record in uh, various places for promoting a view called democratic equality. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, um, in human affairs, sometimes, you know, if we think about the liberal public-private distinction, sometimes people think liberalism is just about giving individuals a private sphere where they're free to make decisions uh, without interference from other people. And certainly that's an important strain within liberal thought. But, of course, the other strain is there's a lot of decisions uh, uh, which require cooperation and collective action. We face all kinds of collective action problems and we have to come up with solutions. And that, of course, is the public side of liberal thought. And on the public side, uh, the only credible way to ensure that the collective solutions we come up with are appropriately and equally respectful of everyone's dignity, rights, and uh, uh, interests is a democratic form. That's the only way we've managed to, to come up with that. And I think there's deep epistemic reasons why uh, democracy is needed uh, to ensure that in those spheres of life in which we need to cooperate around uh, common principles and solve our collective problems, um, democracy provides really the only feasible way to do so consistently with equal respect and concern for every member of society. So on my view, democracy then can be conceived at one level simply as a membership organization. We have a society which is organized around uh, certain modes of collective problem solving uh, and everyone in that society, everyone who participates in that society is entitled to membership, okay? And that means mm -hmm. that their interests are to be regarded and given weight by whatever solutions we come up with. We can also think of democracy in a narrowly institutional sense in terms of the formal organization of politics things like elections and the universal franchise, freedom of the press, uh, competition of political parties. This is more the formal aspect of government and also, of course, the internal organization of representative government and so forth. Uh, but then I think of democracy much more broadly as a way of life and not just as a narrow set of legal principles that regulate things like voting. Democracy, more fundamentally, is a mode by which citizens relate to each other by taking it for granted that everyone has a seat at the table, that we have these problems that we share, 
and that hammering out solutions, ha- hammering out collective solutions requires that everyone with a stake in the problem uh, is entitled to a seat at the table and needs to be consulted. Uh, their perspectives, their concerns, their worries, their interests need to be consulted. Uh, and that requires that we talk to them. Uh, they're bearers of information that we don't have access to. Uh, uh, and the information they bring is critical to hammering out collective solutions that are uh, uh, equally responsive to everyone's interests. And that's something that we do culturally and not just in the chambers of the legislature. It's something that we do in public discourse. Right. Um, And that general conception of democracy, uh, I take it and you say it in your book and you say it in some of your other work, uh, sort of owes heavily to uh, two of my own philosophical heroes, John Dewey and uh, John Stuart Mill. Um, could you tell us a little bit? I mean, so this is an epistemic, in some sense, epistemic conception of democracy, at least insofar as it sees democracy as, uh, as you say, a way of life that's focused on problem solving, and that um, in, insofar as it's uh, a way of life focused on problem solving, it has to have some epistemic element in the sense that it has to gather information about the nature of the problems that are confronting. Uh, individuals, could you say stuff about um, the ways in which you see um, different kinds of knowledge being distributed across different kinds of demographic segments of uh, the de- uh, the democratic population? Because it seems like that's a that's a fundamental part of of of, of the view. I take it. That's quite right. So um, here's to take a completely uncontroversial case in which I think we recognize this. Um, there's public policies have asymmetrical effects across space, just geographically, right? The coasts, people on the coasts have different interests from uh, people in the interior. The same public policy that might be very favorable to people on the coasts might be unfavorable to people in the interior. Well, uh, in order to make sure that everyone's interests are, are heard, one of the principles of representation that we have is geographical, right? We make sure that each uh, uh, locality gets to send representatives to the larger unit so that their uh, geographical interests, so to speak, are heard. Now, let's take this now in a more pointed direction by thinking about the other ways in which Uh, problems and policies have asymmetrical consequences for different groups of people. It's not just geographical. Our society is divided in any number of other ways, by gender, for instance, by class, by race. Uh, And in my book, what I'm focusing on mainly is the ways in which our common modes of acting have radically asymmetrical effects by race, paying special attention to the specific effects that our current ways of operating uh, impose very grave disadvantages on African Americans. This means that they are suffering from a variety of problems health problems, lack of access to public resources, uh, lack of access to decent education, chronically higher unemployment, poverty, crime, and so forth. They're problems that are 
seriously disadvantaging African-Americans in ways that whites are hardly aware of and hardly encounter personally themselves. There's a grave asymmetry there that means that African-Americans are bearers of a certain kind of knowledge of the problems afflicting their communities. Uh, and that knowledge needs to be brought to bear on the formation of public policy in any democratic society that claims to be serving the interests of all of its citizens. If you see a particular section of citizens severely disadvantaged by the way our society operates, then their voices critically need to be heard. Uh, and that's really the impetus behind the democratic force of my argument for integration. That as long as African Americans are segregated spatially and by social role from mainstream institutions in society, their voices won't be heard, their problems will be neglected, information critical to the solution of those problems uh, will not uh, be brought to bear on public policy formation and we will end up having uh, democracy only in name and not in reality. Right. And I take it that this epistemic dimension about um, the special kinds of information, the special kinds of knowledge that African-Americans uh, will have with respect to uh, problems confronting uh, uh, African-American communities, I take it that that's a, a, a crucial um, element of the view because um, your argument um, isn't simply calling for um, more stringent anti-discrimination policy uh, it's, it, or um, uh, social changes that help to fight various kinds of prejudices. It's calling for what seems to me to be a more far-reaching and positive ideal of integration. That is that affecting the laws and the norms and the rules uh, absent the, the full participation and contribution uh, of disadvantaged uh, uh, African-Americans uh, with respect to certain kinds of problems, you're not going to get a solution unless you achieve some level of um, uh, what we might think of, I guess, as epistemic inclusion. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yes. And it also helps us see why inclusion of African-Americans isn't simply a, a kind of purely formal right. demand that we need that kind of inclusion and integration in order to form better policies. Right, right. Um, well, let me pick up on this so um, and move into some of the, uh, uh, the the meat of the book, or at least what I see as the meat of the book, because, um, you know, in, in thinking of the ideal, non-ideal theory and the role of empirical uh, data, um, this book is, uh, I'll just tell the audience, uh, filled with uh, really amazing uh, analyses of empirical data. And uh, I commend you in, 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 in many respects, but one of the uh, really exciting aspects of the book is um, you know, philosophers, when they turn to uh, even political philosophers, when they turn to empirical data, often uh, recite or rehearse the empirical data that most comfortably suits their position or their their, their conclusion. Um, uh, and uh, but but you go further than this in the imperative of integration, in that uh, this book is filled with analyses not only of 
the kinds of data that are comfortable to uh, your own uh, 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 assertions and conclusions, but you also address uh, studies that look like they pr promote other kinds of conclusions, and you talk about the methodological issues uh, with different kinds of studies, and so um, one walks away not only with um, uh, a sense of um, uh, what Elizabeth Anderson thinks the right answer to these questions are and some of the empirical stuff that support that. But also the reader walks away with a, a kind of sense of um, what kind of data there are, what kinds of studies there are, what kinds of different findings have been uh, revealed by these studies and different ways in which uh, one can show that um, studies that might seem to contravene some of your views uh, can be criticized on various methodological and other kinds of grounds. So it was uh, really eye-opening uh, uh, for me uh, in that respect. Um, so could you tell us now a little bit about some of these uh, data with respect to uh, de facto segregation in the United States? Um, and in particular, uh, could you tell us a little bit about why you think that some of the uh, I think, unfortunately, standard responses to some of these data uh, don't work. And when I say uh, sort of uh, unfortunately uh, common responses, um, I, I take it that it's fairly common for people in light of uh, hearing about, for example, the um, uh, differences in availability of doctors in white and African-American communities, the difference in the availability of supermarkets with fresh food, uh, data about unemployment and unemployment rates and the length of unemployment, all the stuff that you go through in this book, I take it a common response would be to explain the data away by means of some morally neutralizing narrative or some morally, uh, some, some narrative according to which segregation is the result of morally innocent and not disreputable uh, social practices. Now you say that and you argue in the book, I think quite forcefully that these uh, responses, uh, which tend to uh, morally um, or deflate the moral uh, uh, impact of the data, don't work. Can you tell us about how those arguments run? Right. So let's just sort of step back a little bit and think about the sort of classes of data that I'm bringing to bear on this problem. So one class of data just has to deal with the very profound socioeconomic uh, and social psychological disadvantages that African Americans face in terms of unemployment, educational attainment, uh, income and wealth, um, access to doctors, rates of incarceration. You can go on and on. Right. There's essentially no dimension of human welfare that's been measured by social scientific data in which uh, blacks do not come out severely disadvantaged. Okay, so that's one body of data. Second body of data has to do with the very profound um, racial segregation that continues to exist. Uh, African Americans are very highly segregated residentially from whites, and this leads to segregation in other domains too, notably in public schools, in churches, families. Uh, there's very little interracial dating between blacks and whites, in contrast, say, uh, with fairly high degrees of interracial dating between whites and Asian Americans. Um, <clears throat> so we see segregation being reproduced in a lot of different domains. Uh, what I do in my book is argue that these two sets of facts are very deeply connected. My argument is that 
the fact of racial segregation explains a lot of the very profound disadvantages that African-Americans suffer in our society. I give a theoretical basis for thinking this in terms of Charles Tilley's uh, wonderful work called Durable Inequality, uh, a work that I think every political philosopher should read and ponder. His argument is that uh, segregation causes, is a fundamental cause of group inequality because essentially what happens is more privileged groups secure a kind of relative monopoly position on particular goods that are critical for social advancement and exclude other groups from access to those goods. So he's got a causal story of how segregation leads to inequality. And what I do in my book is I, then I show in great detail how you can fill in that kind of shell of an explanation with the actual details of how segregation works in American society to deprive African-Americans of access to goods. So just to give you one example, and I have many, many others in the book, um, we can take a look at segregation of social networks. Okay, blacks mostly know other blacks, whites know other whites. These are social networks, okay, they're segregated. Now, it turns out that information about job openings circulates within social networks and hardly at all between them, because who's talking to who? They talk to their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers. If whites already have a dominant position in uh, a firm, okay, and there's very few blacks, most employers advertise new job openings in the first instance to, the, to their own employees, and then they ask for referrals, Oh, do you have a friend who might uh, do well at this job? Well, if whites only have friends or neighbors or relatives who are themselves white, then that information about job openings will only circulate within white circles, and blacks will never never hear of the job opening. Okay, right. And so they get exclusion, perpetuates itself over time because of the segregation of social networks. So that's just one example, and in fact, one of the things that I stress in my book is that there are, in fact, dozens and dozens of different causal routes by which segregation brings about systematic disadvantage. Now, in contrast with this kind of structural story of how uh, disadvantage is propagated uh, within our society, we, of course, have rival stories that are circulated uh, uh, in American public discourse that focus more on what are seen as um, defective choices of African-Americans themselves. Right. Uh, we see African-Americans dropping out of school, uh, having you know, children at a very young age before they're able to afford to raise those children. We see lots of out-of-wedlock uh, childbirth, even though we know that having two parents and a family is much more likely to prevent uh, uh, the children from living in a state of poverty. We have high rates of engagement in gangs and criminal activity. Uh, There's all kinds of uh, self-destructive behavior within the African-American community. And I think the dominant mode of American public discourse is to point 
to these behaviors and say that if only African-Americans would behave better, stay in school, study hard, wait to get married before having children and so forth, then their problems would be solved and the larger, you know, America doesn't need to do anything. It's up to them to solve. That I think is a dominant narrative. Um, and what I try to do in my book is I acknowledge that many of these behaviors are dysfunctional in the wider world. But I also argue that um, one cannot simply point in isolated fashion to those behaviors and attribute them to supposed cultural norms within the African-American community without getting a causal understanding of what causes those behaviors to emerge. And those causes are not cultural uh, in the sense of reflecting some distinctive subgroups' uh, uh, values, but rather come about as the result of the imposition of structural disadvantage itself. So one very important information, piece of information to keep in mind is that across the industrialized world, whenever we find profoundly segregated communities in which poverty, unemployment, and disadvantage are concentrated, we see the same behaviors emerging regardless of the racial composition of that community. So you can go to England in communities that are 98% white, but which, because of deindustrialization, has suffered from concentrated unemployment and uh, concentrated poverty. And you see all the same behaviors emerging, high rates of out-of-wedlock birth, uh, uh, fathers not present in the home or supporting the children, high rates of high school dropout, uh, engagement in gangs and so forth. And so then you have to ask, okay, if this is a feature of communities, if these behaviors tend to emerge wherever we see communities that have been deprived of access to decent jobs that are capable of supporting a family, that is, that actually deliver a wage that's able to support a family, maybe we should look at the conditions under which these communities uh, uh, exist and are created. And that's not to get, make any excuses for people who in these communities drop out of school. Obviously, they should stay in school. It would be better for them if they did. It would be better for their children if they did. It would be better for the whole society if they didn't drop out of school. <laughs> At the same time, if due to concentrated poverty, the schools themselves are faced with overwhelming problems and completely inadequate resources to deal with them, if the schools have become mere holding pens that hardly engage in any instruction at all because they're spending all their time just getting the kids to line up in order, uh, <laughs> right, well, then right. you can understand why people are not so interested in school. And if the rewards of school are not vivid to these children because they look around in the adult world and they don't see visible examples of success where hard work at school has led to economic success, 
it stands to reason that those children will not see very compelling reasons to stick around uh, in an environment that isn't even offering uh, interesting uh, and challenging instruction. Right. And you tell a, a similarly structural um, uh, story or give a similarly structural analysis of another line of um, response to all the, the prima facie data of, uh, of the uh, injustice of de facto segregation. Uh, and this line sort of talks about um, uh, voluntary segregation or people liking to be with people of their own kind and that there's nothing morally pernicious behind some of these data. It's just the social costs and consequences of wanting to live with people like yourselves. And even in the case of um, uh, people living in white neighborhoods who uh, like to live among other white people, there's not a the story runs. There's not a morally pernicious motivation or nothing racist going on, but just some kind of kind of morally innocent preference. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you find that kind of line also uh, unsatisfying? Right. Well, uh, a couple points to make here. Um, one is that I, I don't deny that ethnocentrism or the desire to hang out with people of the same social identity is a pervasive uh, psychological tendency among human beings. I think ethnocentrism plainly is pervasive, but it doesn't actually explain the currently observed extreme patterns of racial segregation that we actually observe in the United States. One reason for that is that it's, you know, you can hang out with your own group without insisting that none of your neighbors uh, be members of other groups. And in fact, in the idealized ethnic immigrant neighborhoods that we imagine existed, say, in New York City around the turn of the century, where you had Italian, Jewish, and Irish neighborhoods, if you actually look at levels of ethnic segregation within these neighborhoods, they were far lower. There was actually far more mixing of Jews, Italians, and Irish in New York City at the turn of the century than there is of blacks and whites in neighborhoods today. Yet there was no obstacles to Jews hanging out with Jews, Italians with Italians, Irish with other Irish. That was completely compatible with uh, living in neighborhoods where many of one's neighbors were not of one's ethnic group. So hanging out together is not incompatible with also living amidst members of other groups. And indeed, whites already show that in the relatively high degrees of integration that they have with Asian Americans. Uniquely, what we find is not that whites insist on wholly segregated neighborhoods, but rather that they insist on, insist on neighborhoods without African Americans. They're not so upset about having Asians enter the neighborhood. <laughs> what right. they do is they flee from neighborhoods which blacks enter. And this sensitivity to black entry is so extreme that in the social science data, we find that the median uh, 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 market price of a house drops even with the presence of just a single African-American family in the neighborhood. That, that effect is measurable, okay? We don't find that effect when an Asian enters the neighborhood. So what we see here is not just ethnocentrism or the desire to hang out with members of one's own identity group, but a profound white antipathy towards blacks in particular. Okay. Right. It's outgroup 
antipathy, not in-group uh, 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 chumminess right. that is the cause of the problem here. In addition, we do know from vast amounts of testing that an awful lot of racial segregation in neighborhoods is due to uh, uh, illegal housing discrimination, just landlords refusing to rent to black people, real estate agents uh, refusing to show homes to black people in white neighborhoods, always steering them to black neighborhoods and things like this. Those actions are illegal under our fair housing laws, but they are absolutely pervasive. And in many cases, as I report in my book, uh, uh, landlords are completely open to white people that they practice racial discrimination. They tell white people that they will not rent to a black person as a way to market their housing to white people who they presume don't want to have anything to do with blacks. Right, right. Um, Well, let me now ask about the the final chapter of the book. Um, Again, getting back to the ideal, non-ideal, you do have a sentence in there about whether all of this non-ideal theory connected with this ideal of um, integration might not be sort of too pie in the sky. Um, Again, one of the refreshing aspects of the imperative of integration is that uh, throughout the book and then in this uh, last chapter, you you offer some some summary remarks, um, uh, you're constantly making uh, what looked to me at times very definite uh, proposals with respect to public policy uh, and norms and laws and these sorts of things. Um, so if, let me put the question this way, so if um, non-discrimination and uh, uh, um, uh, sort of formal and legal uh, blocks uh, to um, uh, people putting their prejudices, uh, racial prejudices in practice are not enough, but we need for democracy's sake to achieve this ideal of integration, um, it does look like there will have to be some far-reaching uh, uh, changes in our, uh, uh, maybe even our national consciousness. Um, could you outline some of the uh, the positive policy proposals that you think are necessary if we're to pursue this ideal? Right. So I do spend a chapter defending affirmative action right. uh, on integrationist grounds. And here I mean affirmative action, not just in higher education, where most of the attention is drawn, but also uh, in the workplace and affirmative action also in government contracting to make sure that uh, uh, black-owned businesses uh, get access to state contracts. Uh, So that's one major policy, but it's by no means the only one. I'm also very much a fan of integrated housing policies. So instead of putting uh, disadvantaged people in government-owned housing, it'd be much better to give them a voucher and to help them shop for housing in more advantaged neighborhoods where they're more likely to get access to better schools and uh, job openings that don't exist in uh, neighborhoods of high unemployment. Uh, So housing mobility vouchers are a critical part uh, of my program. I also think that uh, we should explicitly practice uh, racial integration of juries I have uh, bring to bear a considerable amount of empirical evidence that racially integrated juries are not just less biased, they are also 
way smarter. They're more deliberative. They bring right. more information to bear. They're, they make fewer errors. They're actually much more responsible juries when they're racially integrated. Another uh, integrative reform doesn't even require moving people. It simply requires redrawing electoral districts. I think um, that the time has come to draw representative districts uh, to be explicitly racially integrated. That doesn't necessarily require then that we favor major so-called majority minority districts where a particular district would have a majority of African-Americans, say, or Latinos. Rather, I think we should try to maximize the number of districts in which uh, African-Americans and other minorities uh, uh, have enough presence that their voices need to be heard and that politicians need to campaign in ways that are responsive to their interests, uh, but not necessarily that they be a majority whose preferences always carry the day. The point here then is to heighten the need for politicians and parties to organize their agendas around solutions to common problems uh, uh, that are responsive to every group's interests. Right now, we tend to have highly segregated districts, and that means that we have a lot of virtually all white districts that propose policies completely negligent of the interests of districts next door uh, that have high concentrations of African Americans and Latinos uh, who are then cut out of the public policy process. Right. Well, Excellent. Um, Liz, we've, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. You've been very generous. Um, uh, and thank you so much for talking to us about your book, The Imperative of Integration. So I think we have time for one last question, which is the, the question I usually end with. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the next project or what's on the horizon for you? Yeah. So uh, I'm working on a history of egalitarianism from the levelers to the present. <laughs> Oh, wow. Yes, it's a very ambitious project, um, <laughs> but it's going to be a kind of different history of philosophy than is normally practiced because I want to get us beyond the study of the texts themselves and write a kind of pragmatic history where we look not just at what people wrote and what they argued, but what happened when their ideas were put into practice and what did we learn? from that. So this is going to be a pragmatic history that recasts egalitarianism not just as a set of ideas that people argued about, but as a series of experiments in living from which we can learn. Uh, so for instance, one of my sub-projects of this is going to be looking at uh, the utopian socialists right. who had a very distinctive vision of what equality and social relations would look like that would be centered on uh, a communal form of life. Uh, and communes were actually set up. Uh, <laughs> uh, and they all failed. <laughs> so now that's like really interesting experiment. People were really bold in thinking about an alternative way of life. But what I'm interested in is then not just the rationales for living this way, but how come people, once they did try it out, how come it didn't really work for them? Right. And why did these why did these experiments fail? And perhaps then that could feed back and force us to refine our image, our ideal of what equality and social relations uh, would really look like. Well, that sounds uh, very exciting, and um, I look forward to 
to reading that uh, when uh, it when it uh, hits the shelves. Um, but for now, uh, the book is The Imperative of Integration, published with Princeton University Press. Uh, the author is Elizabeth Anderson. Liz, thank you so much for your time uh, it's been a for pleasure. talking with us today. Great. Take care now. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Professor Elizabeth Anderson of the University of Michigan. We were talking about her new book, The Imperative of Integration, which is published by Princeton University Press. I'm Robert Talese, your host. This is New Books in Philosophy. Thank you for listening. Thank you.